If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today you'll be hearing some unexpected stories from the history of Ireland, courtesy of the author Turtle Bunbury. Earlier this year, Turtle published Ireland's Forgotten Past, a colourful collection of 36 lesser-known moments from the nation's history. I called him to find out more. Your book is is a somewhat whimsical journey through 36 snapshots from Irish history. What captured your imagination about these stories in particular? Well, I, I live, where I live now, where I'm looking at is the glorious green Irish countryside, sun-dappled today. Uh, and I live um, very close to the foot of the Wicklow Mountains. I can see County Wexford, where the Normans and the Vikings once held power. And I've always uh, been, you know, very fascinated by all the history of the landscape that surrounds me. Right over through my window, I can see an overgrown ring fort uh, covered in primroses and bluebells. But, you know, that was once home to maybe seven or eight families, I'm told. Uh, Then there's a little stream that flows down there towards an ancient monastery. I mean, it's practically gone at this point. The monastery is so ancient. But there's a lane there uh, and there's a little weir. Uh, and then across a couple of fields from that is uh, a dolmen, uh, you know, you know, one of those um, uh, portal tombs that was built 5,000 years ago. Um, so you're surrounded by this stuff. Um, and also what kind of triggered it for this book in a way was just behind the dolmen is a barley field. And that barley field, uh, somebody sent a drone over it in uh, the, the beautiful long hot summer of 2018 and it suddenly turned out that barley field was full of uh, ancient barrows and ring ditches and circular enclosures, you know, as, as were being revealed all across uh, these islands during that summer. And I, I, it just struck me that, you know, this, there are so many secrets that are locked up in our landscape. Uh, and that's something that I've always uh, felt a deep, uh, you know, affinity with, that every field and hill and stream and, you know, rock uh, is certainly in Ireland. I'm sure it's the same across, you know, many countries. But in Ireland, they're all sort of uh, offer you little clues into our past. So that's what I was trying to explore. 
that leads me on very nicely to my next question, which is, um, as became very clear in your first answer, landscape is an incredibly important part of the stories that you tell in the book. As well as all these um, ones just within your local area, what do you think are some of the must-see historical sites or historic uh, landscapes for visitors to Ireland? Well, I mean, we, we've we got very blasé about them at this stage. We just drive past them without realising that over there on top of those mountains are amazing, uh, again, you know, stone circles or ancient forts or primeval forests or whatever it is. Um, but, uh, you know, certainly uh, in, in any of the mountainy parts of Ireland, uh, any hill in Ireland, you can climb up there and you're pretty sure you're going to find something from the Neolithic period, uh, which, you know, uh, particularly in the remotest parts of Ireland. So, you know, that that is uh, uh, pretty extraordinary in itself. One of the places I, I, I visited was Sleeve Gullion, which is this uh, volcano that collapsed millions and millions of years ago. And, and very few people in Ireland would be aware that there was ever a volcano in Ireland. But actually, we all drive through it all the time. It's on uh, we, the main Belfast to Dublin Road goes through it. Uh, and it's this fascinating landscape around there that is right on the Louth Armagh border, the Northern Irish border with the South. Um, so, you know, and, and there's ring forts on top of that too. In fact, the highest passage grave in Ireland is at, is at the very top of it. Um, so that that is another area of great beauty. But uh, I'm afraid to say I um, think we're very blessed in Ireland because nearly every which way you look, there is something, uh, you know, of a historical nature for people. Uh, so many ruined castles and ring forts and things like that everywhere. It sounds fantastic. You mentioned earlier that these stories, many of them have been forgotten. How did you go about rediscovering them and collecting them all? Well, I mean, I was looking at different things. I mean, some of the stories are stories that have entertained me over the years about characters or, or events that are just so odd that I felt it was high time that they came to light again. Uh, others are things that are slightly more complicated. They, you know, they're about people who've just been sort of left out. And you're, uh, and I use the word, the, the subtitle of the book is a history of the overlooked and disremembered. And I know disremembered is a kind of made up word, but I, I think I was trying to find a word for something that means it's been deliberately forgotten and disremembered seems to sort of, you know, cover that. Um, but there are aspects of our history, just like in any country's history, where people choose not to remember it. And in, in Ireland, for instance, if you picked up uh, most 20th century history books written in Ireland, you're not really going to find much reference to the hundreds of thousands of Irish who served loyally with the British Empire, you know, the forces with the British Army or the Royal Navy or so forth, you know, because that didn't really fit with the narrative or... Um, another example would be royal visits. I mean, George the Fourth, Queen Victoria, Edward the Seventh—they all made successful visits to Ireland. But again, you wouldn't really find that story told uh, very much in the Irish narrative. That's not to say so, this is a this isn't an apologia for for royal Ireland's royal past or anything. But uh, I just th- thought it was very important to address those matters. Yeah. So, who are some of the characters from Irish history that that captured your imagination? Well, um, I think one of the earliest ones I, I, I fell in love with uh, to an extent is Citric Silkbeard. Um, and I fell in love with his name because I'm not sure he'd have been that desirable a character. He was um, a Viking warlord and I'm, uh, anyway, a fairly hefty character. He was king of Dublin for 46 years um, and uh, pretty remarkable. I think 
you know, we often forget how much influence the Vikings had over us in Ireland. It's, it's emerged recently that a lot of us have it in our DNA, a lot more people than we thought. Um, but they were dominant here for, for the guts of 400 years. So, you know, there's a big legacy there. It's not just the names of the days of the week that they gave us. Um, Dublin, uh, of course, was, was one of a half dozen ports, is the, the wealthiest of all the ports that they founded, founded by Norse Vikings or Ostmen, men of the East, as we call them. Uh, in 841 AD, uh, and it became extremely wealthy port on, on the Vikings' watch, mainly as a holding depot for slaves, it seems. That was one of its great trades uh, up around Dublin Castle near Temple Bar, for anybody who knows Dublin. And this, um, the, the port city basically became the Kingdom of Dublin, and in 993 AD, it came into the hands of Citric Silkbeard, his um his grandfather had been a pretty successful king of dublin his father had been a little less so um the Viking, the dublin was actually invaded uh by the high king of ireland when citric was a boy and uh the city was burnt down and all the slaves were freed and and a massive tax put on the vikings themselves um so and then citric's brother uh took was was the king before him a guy with the great name of glun irony um and uh he was uh, a, a roaring alcoholic uh and he ruled for nine years uh before he was murdered uh, and then citric comes to the fore and what's what i like about I mean, he's got a really interesting a lot of things happen on his watch he founds ireland's first mint uh, in dublin and and every now and then coins from that mint turn up they found some in wales recently um, he uh, kick-started the, the very first city uh, wall, the stone wall around Dublin that started on his watch. Christchurch Cathedral, which is a, a place that anybody going to Dublin really ought to visit. Again, that starts on his watch after a pretty fascinating pilgrimage he makes uh, to Rome. Uh, and then he returns via Cologne in Germany and he meets the Irish Benedictine community there. And that seems to have been the basis for building the, the very first timber and stone cathedral in Christchurch. So he's got all that going on. You also talk about the island's connection to the Roman world. Shows that it was actually quite interconnected early on. Yeah, very much. I mean, look, it, it is an island uh, at the end of the day on the west coast of Europe. So yes, uh, and, and even going back to the Neolithic times and the Bronze Age times, you're constantly seeing links to uh, the Iberian Peninsula, to Portugal, uh, to Spain, and deep into the Mediterranean. And of course, the Viking world being as extensive as it was, it's no surprise that, uh, you know, that connection between Dublin and, and all of Europe. I mean, Dublin itself is part of that sort of regional power block at that time that uh, extended right up the west coast of Scotland and northern England, occasionally takes in places like the Isle of Man, the Hebrides, the Orkneys, but it goes all the way up into, into Norway. Um, and I, I know that plenty of metal work has turned up in Viking graves, um, you know, on the west coast of Norway from the time of Citric Silkbeard and earlier, uh, that is uh, prob possibly plunder, but more probably merchandise, they think now. One of the chapter titles which I was quite surprised to read was The Knights Templar in Ireland, as I had no idea that they had even been active there. What can you tell us about that story? Right. Well, I mean, the Knights Templar, it's always hard to resist the Knights Templar. Um, and um, for those who don't know, they were, they were this uh, very wealthy military order that had been founded in Jerusalem in, in 1119 to protect uh, pilgrims who were being mugged and murdered by brigands and thugs uh, on the roads leading into uh, the holy city of Jerusalem, which was at that time under Norman control. 
And basically, this is the run-up to the Cambro-Norman invasion of Ireland 50 years later, in 1169. By that time, the the Templars, they've got enormous financial clout, and they form the elite of the crusading armies. And when, so basically, in fact, it's May 1170, so 850 years ago, uh, the Normans uh, arrive in big numbers under Strongbow Richard uh, de Clare, who's the um, the Earl of Pembroke. And they bring, you know, they change this country. They bring in chivalry and castles and feudalism and frogs and all those sort of things. Anyway, one of the very first uh, adventurers to come is a guy called Robert Fitzstephen. Um, and I'm pretty sure he was certainly a kinsman. And I think he was probably the father of a guy called Geoffrey Fitzstephen, who was the Grand Master of the Templars in England in the early 1180s. Um, in the early 1180s, that's the same time that Henry II, who's the King of England, um, he gives the Knights Templar the Vils, that's the, the taxable settlements of Clontarf, which is just north of Dublin, and Crook in County Waterford. It's roughly about 1,200 acres. Before that, about eight years before that, Henry II had actually had to come over to Ireland. The Normans had come over uh, and been so successful in their conquest of the sunny southeast of Ireland um, that uh, Henry was uh, alarmed. He thought that they were maybe going to set up a rival kingdom to himself. So he came over with another huge force, something like 500 mounted knights, 4,000 archers and men-at-arms and so on. And he got all the Irish and the Normans to submit to him, all the, the main Irish kings and the Norman lords, And before he left, he granted the southern half of the Hook Peninsula in County Wexford to the Knights Templar. And that includes this very lucrative ferry crossing that goes to Waterford and various things. So they end up with these enormous estates, huge estates, uh, maybe 13 or 14 preceptories or or manors uh, all across Munster and Leinster. And right over into, they've they've got one, their most westerly stronghold is over in County Sligo by a place that's called today uh, Temple House. And What we think is that these estates were basically to raise income from agriculture and rents to help fund the the ongoing campaigns in the Holy Land. Um, And definitely what they were doing was they were converting the pasture lands into cornfields, into profitable cornfields. They were developing a a cloth and wool industry, pretty modest, but uh, they were also probably breeding horses. So quite a lot going on there. And the guys are running them, uh, running the estates, collecting the rents. Uh, appear to have been retired Knights Templar whose fighting days were uh, behind them. So it was essentially the breadbasket of their other operations? It was certainly a breadbasket. I know that they had similar operations, you know, elsewhere across Europe, but definitely, uh, you know, it's good. it was good land where they were. They were improving the land, but uh, definitely they were bringing in a lot of barley and wheat and making good money from it. Um, one of the key figures in this story is... Uh, William Marshall. What can you tell us about him? Yeah, well, I mean, Mar- William Marshall, who's the, the great, the greatest knight as he was known, the Earl of Pembroke, Lord of Leinster, uh, a fascinating guy all by himself. I'm sure you've covered him at length because he survived all the Plantagenet kings. He gets King John to the table for Magna Carta. He's the richest man in the British Isles, I think, when he when he when he dies. Um, he is also uh, the most powerful Anglo-Norman lord to come to Ireland, and he scores the ultimate bride uh, in Isabel de Clare. I mentioned Strongbow earlier. Uh, she is the daughter of Strongbow, Richard de Clare, uh, and his wife Aoife, um, uh, who was the daughter of the last, well, the King Dermot McMurrah of Leinster. And what that basically means is that William Marshall 
ends up inheriting the kingdom of Leinster, he and his his wife Isabel, uh, the kingdom of Leinster, which is a huge chunk, the bottom right corner of Ireland. Um, and their legacy is all over the place. They built castles and ports and towns and a, and a fabulous lighthouse. Um, and you can see m- the, m- the ruins of many of those things right now to this day. Uh, but William Marshall, of course, was uh, buried as a Knight Templar when he died in 1219. So that you know reinforces that link. Um, and just very uh, quickly, one other point there is that uh, just before him was a guy called Walter de Riddlesford. He was the first Grand Master of the Knights Templar in Ireland. He uh, founded a, a Knight Templar base at Kilkay, about 20 kilometres from where I am now, near Castle Dermot. Um, and he also had one built at Clontarf Castle, which was the headquarters of the Knights Templar in Ireland. So there are many, many connections going on. So what happened when the when the order was wiped out? Well, yeah, so you fast forward through to that uh, ominous day, uh, the, the original Friday the 13th, Friday the 13th, October 1307, uh, when the Knights Templar were purged uh, out of existence. Uh, and in Ireland, the order went over to, to Ireland as well uh, to arrest them all. And there was only apparently 20 Knights Templar in Ireland at that time, but 14 of them were arrested uh, and they're brought into St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin. And there's uh, quite detailed accounts of this four-month inquisition in which these guys are you know, facing charges, 85 charges in total of denying Christ and spitting on the cross and worshipping false idols and homosexuality. Um, and in fact, that's, you know, the most controversial aspect of it is this guy called Henri Donnet, who had just taken office as Master of the Templars in Ireland two days before the arrests began. So I don't know what's going on there. But anyway, he was this very respected Templar veteran. He'd fought in Cyprus and Syria and places like that. But he was also a favourite of Jacques de Molay, which was, the, he was the Order's uh, Grand Master, the Grand Master of the whole Knights Tem- Templar across Europe. Uh, and de Molay had already been uh, subjected to vicious torture and confessed to various heresies uh, who'd go on to be burnt at the stake. But anyway, in Dublin, uh, some of the witnesses suggested that Donay and de Molay had engaged in sodomy. So that was uh, certainly the source of a lot of tittle-tattle in Dublin at the time. But ultimately, they couldn't pin anything on them, on the Irish Templars at all. And uh, I mean, it got ridiculous, the whole trial. But uh, at the end of it all, they, they, everybody was let go. Even Dane was released on bail, uh, although they did lose their lands. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Um, and, and what you get is this uh, incredible hurricane that roars across thousands of miles of unbroken Atlantic Ocean, gathering momentum. Uh, and it, apparently it, the, it, it hit the West Coast with such power that the waves broke, broke over the top of the Cliffs of Moher. Moving forward a few hundred years now, because you do cover a vast span of time in the book, um, you take a look at one episode of history uh, which revolves around Oliver Cromwell, who you call the most despised human in Irish history. But you t- take a slightly sideways look at the story through focusing on his tailor. Why did you decide to look at that aspect of the story? Well, I think, I mean, that's the thing about uh, history, isn't it? There's always surprise uh, people who turn up. uh, And Daniel Byrne, uh, who is, as I call him, Cromwell's tailor, is an extraordinary example of somebody who's being very opportunist uh, at a time like uh, the Cromwellian conquest of Ireland. Um, And he's unlikely because he is actually uh, his ancestry. He's one of the O'Byrnes of the Wicklow 
Mountains, this fierce, uh, fearsome tribe who lived up uh, up in the Wicklow Mountains and caused uh, chaos to Dublin Castle for many centuries. His great grandfather was this guy called Fiach McHugh O'Byrne, who was the, the arch nemesis of Queen Elizabeth and her uh, Tudor administration in Dublin. Um, Daniel, uh, shortly before Cromwell arrives, he's got a little tailor outfit uh, going in Dublin City, um, and uh, it's right beside Christchurch Cathedral. And he just, I guess he just spots the gap in the market. And uh, by the before Cromwell is in Ireland for very long, contemporary records say that Daniel Byrne, he's bought himself an enormous amount of white cloth in Dublin. He has it dyed red, coloured red, um, and he has 40 tailors working under him, turning that white cloth dyed red into the red coats, the uniforms for Cromwell's army, which is, uh, you know, pretty uh, amazing thing to have done. There are apparently 43,000 soldiers in Cromwell's army and the contemporary records uh, confirm they say he made uniforms for 40,000 men. As that story highlights, like many in the book, um, Ireland hasn't always had an easy relationship with England, but that is something that comes up again and again, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, obviously, it has. Uh, like like everybody, you you sort of have disagreements with your neighbours to your left and to your right, uh, and the Irish situation was further complicated by the whole uh, conquest of Ireland. Although it is just so complicated how that plays out, because we've already heard that the you know the very first people to come to Ireland were French speaking uh, Normans from Wales. Uh, or oh, sorry, before that, we had the Vikings who were all speaking whatever they were speaking. So it is so complicated. And all the way through the Middle Ages, all the different waves of people coming and going and, and right through to the uh, Tudor the Tudor era, you know, a lot of the people who come over to Ireland uh, in the reign of Queen Elizabeth are young men in their early 20s who are, again, trying to be opportunists, trying to see if they can get hold of a bit of land. Um, it is very, very complicated. People change sides. There are always uh, disputes but within families themselves, which makes it very complicated to try and see uh, where people's uh, loyalties are. And as I say, there was a huge amount of people who uh, who played along with it, who went with Ireland as the second city of the British Empire, as it was for a period, played that game. You'll find huge numbers of, of Irish in the civil service, in the army, as I mentioned, in the navy. Um, but of course, then you have the other side, uh, and that is the people who are really getting a very poor deal out of it, particularly after the Battle of the Boyne, when the Protestant ascendancy uh, came in and uh, basically ruled for a couple of hundred years. Um, you know, that British imperial government uh, in reinforcing the Protestant uh, status. And that's when you get that massive uh, emigration to America and a lot more tragic stories besides. As someone with um, a pretty good grasp over a vast swathe of Irish history. Were there any episodes or stories that you were really surprised to learn about when you were researching the book? Well, I I think the era of the First World War, um, which I had come to light when I first started uh, writing the book, but I hadn't quite realised how much the Irish were involved in that. Uh, and I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, I, I tell a chapter in the book about um, some of the Royal Dublin Fusiliers who had an incredibly hard time on the Western Front during the same week that the Easter Rising was being fought in Dublin. Uh, and actually, uh, you know, when all said and done, more uh, Irishmen died on the Western Front that week than died uh, men, women and children uh, in um, in Dublin that same week. So that that you know, greatly surprised me. Um, but that's the joy of being uh, in the world of history. You're always going to be surprised, I think, by the, the tales that come up. 
Um, and uh, the, the the other era that uh, you know would would come to the fore more and more is the Georgian age, because with um, the brilliance of the internet and being able to check through the old newspaper archives, you can really get tremendous stories out from the 18th century. And I think the Georgian age is, is always coming to life. Um, talking about the Georgian age, well, just about yes, um, sneaking into the right at the end of the Georgian age, um, you chronicle an episode. The Night of the Big Wind, a hurricane in 1839. What can you tell us about that? Right, yes. So very, uh, yeah, a remarkable... Well, this is the, the, the most devastating storm in recorded Irish history. Um, it, it it came in at night, it, it uh, st- which made it more terrifying. It started slowly. I mean, I think the thing is, nowadays, we... We, um, when a hurricane is coming, we've given it a cuddly name. Uh, we then watch it coming over, you know, days and days as it approaches, and that has its own level of fear. But for these guys, uh, you know, they had no idea what was coming. And the, and the early reports that you get from the west of Ireland is that it was extremely calm beforehand. And you could hear voices floating on the air between houses like a mile apart. Uh, and then the first raindrops start. Um, and, and what you get is this uh, incredible hurricane that roars across thousands of miles of unbroken Atlantic Ocean, gathering momentum. Uh, and it, apparently it, the, it, it hit the West Coast with such power that the waves broke, broke over the top of the Cliffs of Moher. Um, I don't know, but I mean, when you read contemporary accounts, the impression is certainly that if Ireland didn't have those magnificent cliffs forming a barrier along the West Coast, the entire country would have been engulfed by water. Um, it was a very, very intense storm. There's wind, there's hail, there's lightning, and it just, it went through the country, through the centre of the country and destroying thatch roofs. Of course, a lot of the houses are thatch roofs or timber cabins and shattering windows, uh, annihilating farms, all the hay ricks and fences, and you've got animals escaping everywhere. Um, chimneys, somebody produced a statistic that 4,846 chimneys were knocked off their perches that night. So there you go, that's a measure of it. And where I live in, in, in Carlow, very near Carlow town, uh, it knocked a pinnacle off uh, Carlow Cathedral uh, and the solitary remaining chimney off Carlow Castle, an old Norman castle. The chimney went off that and hundreds of thousands of trees went down. Again, not far from where I am, a guy called Henry Bruin of Oak Park, who had a substantial estate covered in trees. He declared his woods to be as bald as the palm of my hand. <laughs> Um, to circle around to something that you said earlier, you brought up the the term in the subtitle of your book, disremembered. Why do you think that some of these stories have been, quote, disremembered? Maybe, this, maybe the answer is different for different stories. Yes, I think... Uh... I think the answer is different for different stories. I mean, uh, it, it is, it's what fits with the narrative to an extent. Um, so as I say, with, uh, it, it wouldn't have been very fashionable, I think, in the 20th century to have produced a book highlighting, I mean, it still wouldn't be in the 21st century in, in many quarters, uh, to produce books that, you know, highlight the Irish involvement with uh, the British Empire. Uh, you know, that's still something that people struggle with and, and understandably so in, in, in many ways. Um, and uh, again, you get other people who uh, maybe don't want to be told that their ancestors uh, made uniforms for Cromwell's army. There is, you know, 
It's a long time ago in terms of uh, years, but not so much in terms of generations. And I think, you know, when you go back to the Tudor age, is it what, 10, 11 generations or something like that? Um, so, you know, it's not that many people. And uh, the, <laughs> in Ireland, we have long memories. Um, and, you know, I think that has, a, has its role to play in it. Um, I think my final question would be, what would you want readers to take away from your book? I would like them to just have a fresh look at what's around them. I think that's it. And to, uh, particularly uh, during such times when you can't go too far, if you can get any distance at all, just go and see the places that are around you. Because I think it's just when you see, when I see a ruin, I try to remind myself that in that ruin, there were once people living there, that there were once, uh, you know, beautiful women looking out the windows and, and, and men stoking roaring fires and cooking stuff. And, and life was in there. And if you can try and figure out who those people were and what that was about, I think that just brings life, uh, it just brings it all to, it illuminates it and it will improve your own life because you look over there and it enhances your imagination. That was Turtle Bunbury. Turtle's book, Ireland's Forgotten Past, A History of the Overlooked and Disremembered, is available now from all good bookshops, published by Thames and Hudson. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow when Roland White will be talking about sea harriers in the Falklands. (laughs) 